Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Well, in celebration of Pride Month, which just wrapped up, my guest today is aiming to be the very first trans woman and first openly gay person to sail around the world solo. First, I want to tell you about an opportunity to get out on the water this summer aboard a beautiful 53-foot far. Shearwater Sailing, the show's sponsor, is a sailboat charter business run out of Monterey Bay by Kevin Wasbauer. Shearwater Sailing's flagship vessel is a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. A few months ago, I joined Kevin for a sail on Monterey Bay and can tell you that she is a fun and a fast boat to sail, not to mention beautiful and safe and very comfortable. Well, on July 30th and 31st, Atalanta will be sailing from Monterey to San Francisco and back. If you're interested in a great coastal sailing experience, I encourage you to get in touch with Kevin and join him for one or both of those legs. It's a 15 to 20 hour jaunt. And if you're busy on those dates, in August, Kevin's planning on heading south to Santa Barbara, and you could join for the two-day trip down, the trip back, or the whole five-day adventure from August 13th to 17th, which includes a lay day to explore the lovely beach town of Santa Barbara. Of course, in addition to these special trips, you can always book private sailing charters for a couple of hours or the full day, take a sunset cruise on Monterey Bay, just contact Kevin. You can even book your own multi-day adventure. These are opportunities not to be missed, so you can find Kevin at 650-743-1389 or email him at info at shearwatersailing.net and discuss the possibilities of sailing on Atalanta. Well, Michaela Bauer is a trans woman who only started sailing a short while ago, but she's got big ambitions. Michaela's always loved adventure and the outdoors. And we talk about how at 25, a near-death experience in the mountains in an avalanche actually led her to coming out as trans. Now she's tackling an adventure on the sea aboard her sailboat SV Swirl, a San Juan 30 built in 1977. So let's get right to it. I'm Michaela. I am a 30-year-old trans woman who lives in the Pacific Northwest currently aboard my 1977 San Juan 30. She has a fully custom interior to make her more of a liveaboard-friendly boat. I've been involved in the sailing world pretty heavily for about three years now. Before that, I came from a background of mountaineering and rock climbing. I came out as trans uh, about five years ago now which is crazy. I was just talking to someone about that the other day. <laughs> the fact that it's been five years already, kind of wild to me. It's amazing how time time passes. The big project that I have coming up that's, that's kind of worth introducing, part of how you and I got connected is I'm going to be the first trans person as well as the first openly queer person of any gender to sail around the world solo. That is so cool. Yeah, that is how we got connected. My wife was on some forum and she saw, I think, a note from you about that. 
and said, oh, you have to have this person on the podcast. And immediately after looking at your website, I immediately agreed with her. So I'm excited to have you here, Michaela. There's so much, so much to unpack. We'll, we'll get to your circumnavigation or your intended circumnavigation, which you're calling mm-hmm. trans around the world, right? Yep, trans around the world. And the idea is it's not just me, a trans person going around the world, but I want to share with and engage with um, as many trans people around the world as I can. And you write about that a little bit on your site, actually. What is your goal there? My goal is simply visibility. One of the things as I have watched the political climate, I was going to say change, but it's not really change, unfortunately. It's kind of just be what it is. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I've really noticed works is visibility. It works when people of any minority, but especially I'll talk specifically about the trans community, are visible as a larger collective. And it also works on a one-on-one basis. When I first started transitioning, just to to share a little bit of that story, I didn't want to tell anyone I was trans. I spent the first two years just desperately trying to pass as female and have no one on the streets know that I had once been identified by society any other way. Mm. And now I've almost done 180 degrees on that where I'm like, well, heck, I'll tell anyone I'm trans to some extent. Um, And that's, you know, being that visible with this project has been um, honestly, in a lot of ways, really huge and, and freeing for me. But also the interactions that you get to have with people when you're that upfront and vulnerable with people. I could count on on one hand the number of times that it's led to a negative interaction. In general, even the people who sometimes I go into and I'm like, oh, I kind of know this person's political leanings. Like, I don't know how this is going to go if I tell them that I'm trans right now. And I've, I've never had anything but positive responses and usually engaged conversation. That's so great to hear. I mean, it's easy to vilify a group of other people right but when you're dealing with individuals as people it's a lot harder to dismiss them i i think that that's so true and that's that's my approach towards um my whole trans experience as it is right now my whole gender experience i'm a trans woman but i'm also a woman who a woman who dates other women um, and so I uh, am gay in that aspect and just being vulnerable and open with people has been a good positive experience and, and what kind of kickstarted this whole project. Well, you talked a little bit about that switch from just wanting to pass as female to be to being openly trans and that must have taken courage. But you also mentioned that that major transition to coming out as trans five years ago. And I understand that, that you knew long before then that you identified as a woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the question. I, I think trans people in general get asked a lot, but I know that I have personally been asked a lot is it, it comes in kind of one or two forms. It comes in either the, well, how do you know? Like, how are you sure? It also comes in the aspect of like, how long have you known? Especially as a lot of people try to, to push this false narrative that it's a trendy thing to do right now. Um, 
or that by talking uh, about it, you're somehow going to influence children to want to be exactly. <laughs> and and my answer to that is, uh, I I was three years old when I knew, and that's kind of a, a general ball, ballpark guess. But there were a few things, um, some that are very backed by by um, psychological study and evidence, and some that are just you know I can speak from my own personal experience. Things like when I was a little kid and it was dress up time, I only ever wanted to wear the dresses and skirts. I, I will never forget this time when I, I'm an only child and my mother and I were playing dress up. I was probably five years old and I put on uh, one of her skirts and she safety pinned it on and so that it would fit. And then I refused to take it off before we went to, this is gonna be a, an old reference for your listeners who are younger than I am, but we went to the rental, uh, the movie rental store <laughs> <laughs> and oh, for yeah. anyone who remembers what those are, and uh, I refused to take it off. And I remember my mom just telling the woman at the movie rental store when she commented on it, like, "Oh yeah, like sometimes it's just a skirt day." And my mother, who had no idea that I was trans at the time, and I didn't have the words to to verbalize it, but it's memories like that that I'm able to look back on and just be like, "Yeah, this was." This was me the whole time. And the, the one thing that I do want to say, just as a quick note on that, um, especially as I hope other trans people listen to this, um, those people who didn't figure it out till later in life are no less valid than I am just because I've known since I was three. Sure. Just like I'm no less valid than people who, who came out when they were in high school or elementary school. So, and I yeah, actually for didn't, me, didn't bring that up at all to, to even talk about when you realized but I, I'm more interested in what brought you the courage and to the decision point that you were going to come out as trans five years ago. What gave you that courage? It's a it's a hard story and a little bit of a sad story unfortunately and it's one that I'm willing to share. Unfortunately it's one that I think that a lot of trans people go through. In 2017 while skiing the high Sierras on Nordic skis, I was in an avalanche on the south side of Glen Pass. And I got really lucky. I survived the avalanche. I walked away from it. And it gave kind of a start of like, oh, like this was a moment I could have died in. And I didn't, it wasn't the first time something like that happened, but that was, that was one of the ones where it was like closest, where I was like, ooh, if this had gone like a little bit differently, if I had been somewhere else, this could have ended a lot poorer than it had. And then I sat there and I was reflecting on the fact that for some reason in my life, there was this landmark that I never thought I was gonna make it to. As a queer teenager, I never thought I was gonna live to be 25. I figured that either I would come out as queer and something would happen, or I just wouldn't make it to 25. And I was sitting here 25, I had just been in an avalanche, and I kind of went, shit, I, this, this is it, this, I, I have to come out. And I was with a partner, at the time we'd been together for about three years and she was one of the most supportive people I've ever experienced in my life. And so I told her, cause you gotta start somewhere. She was just overwhelmingly supportive and embracing and just wanted to be a part of that journey with me. And we were for the next two years of it. And that was a huge part of what gave me that courage to come out. And then you just start telling people you know, you tell your your parents at first and you kind of see how it goes. And I got lucky that it went okay. Uh, it definitely could have gone worse. 
you know, you tell your really close friends and see how it goes. And you tell the other queer people in your life because you're pretty sure those ones are going to go okay. And then you start telling them people who are harder to tell. For me, that was my boss at the time. That was a really hard one to come out to. And it went okay. And that's kind of what happens is it just keeps going okay. And then you hit one that doesn't go okay, but you get through it because you have all these other ones that have gone okay and you have the support system behind you at that point. And so that was kind of what led up to me coming out and, and coming out. And now I just turned 30, which was that that next landmark in my head where I turned 30 and it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks where I was like, whoa, I didn't think I was going to turn 30. Wow. What a story. That's amazing. I want to hear more about the avalanche. So I know you've always been an outdoor person and we're going to get to how that comes to sailing, but you were in the Sierras skiing in the high Sierras. Tell us the scenario. It was actually the early summer. I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in 2015. And then in 2017, I was looking for something to do. And I was like, well, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in the driest year on record. And now 2017 is the wettest year on record. Maybe I should go hike the Pacific Crest Trail again. And so I started to off from Campo, California and headed up to the high Sierras. And I had been- Were you solo? To doing, I was solo, yeah. And previous to doing that, I had been guiding in Guatemala. And so I was I started out the gate laying down like 40 mile days and I just did that consistently to the high Sierras. And so I arrived at the high Sierras on Mother's Day, I believe it was May 17th that year. And all the reports from the high Sierras was that they were impassable. People made it up to Kennedy Meadows South. They made it just beyond, I believe it's Chicken Spring Lake is is kind of the next exit point if you make Mm -hmm. it beyond Kennedy Meadows South. And there were reports of people taking like backcountry, you know, powder snowshoes and post holing up to their necks. And so I started looking through my arsenal of, of skills as well as equipment. And I called my mom and I said, hey, uh, would, would you meet me down in Southern California right before the high Sierras with my Nordic skis? And I, I think she thought I was a little nuts at the time. But my thought was there were going to be sections where rocks were starting to come through. And the idea of carrying AT skis through those sections was too heavy. And it was going to be too technically challenging to traverse and navigate some of these passes that were going to be more rock exposed or going to require crampons, boots, and an ice tool. And the idea of having AT skis on the back without being able to be roped up with snow anchors and a partner was going to be too cumbersome. And so I I was thinking, you know, Nordic skis weigh almost nothing, even with the boots. And so I could take these and I could head into the high Sierras. And I did. And I made it further that year than anyone had before me, which was kind of crazy to be as far as people hiking contiguously on the Pacific Crest Trail, being the head of the spear that year is what they what they call it, and being the person who is punching the path forward. And and it went pretty well. And I and I made it to Kearsarge Pass and I went out and I resupplied and I came back in and that first day out of Kearsarge I made it to right below Glen Pass and I started up Glen Pass and I was punching through the snow even with my Nordic skis on to it was mid-afternoon so it was the softest the snow was going to be so I decided to set up camp there sleep for a few hours get up at two or three in the morning and go over the pass at that point I get up and I put my skis on and I have my headlamp on and I kind of realized that with each 
ski step, I'm punching these like 10 foot circles all the way around me in the crust on the top of the snow. I have a lot of backcountry travel experience and I stopped and I thought as you're supposed to, well, this is the time where you should cut an avalanche check and you should see if there's powdery snow beneath this wet, heavy, now frozen snow because those are the conditions for an avalanche. And I get out my my trekking pole to, to use as a kind of improvisational saw and start cutting this check. And I look up and the rocks on the other side of the valley are moving, but the snow around me isn't moving. <laughs> and I realized at that moment that it's because I was sliding down the hill with all the snow, but it just kind of happened wow. so smoothly and so quickly that I almost didn't feel the momentum. Like there was something I felt that made me look up at those rocks across the valley. It wasn't like my feet slipped out from under me. Like I kind of think of when there's an avalanche. And so I slid down the pass and uh, I slid about 600 feet total down the pass, which in the terms of avalanches, I refused to call it an avalanche for the first couple of years after it happened. <laughs> Finally enough, people were like, no, Michaela, you were in an avalanche. <laughs> like, I just kept calling this snow slide because it was only about the top six inches of snow. I never ended up underneath snow or anything, but I did go off about a 20 foot vertical drop and I broke a ski pole which could have been my arm if I had landed differently and so I ended up getting out of Glen Pass down the drainage down to this trail in Kings Canyon National Park and I get down to this trail where I saw the most rattlesnakes I've ever seen in my life because I was the first person who had hiked that trail that year and I had assumed this in my head but then I had it confirmed when I get to you know a, a designated camping spot that night and it's me And I'm laying there in my tent, just kind of, I'm very sore, just waiting for it to get dark enough to fall asleep. And these two guys come trudging into camp and they go, uh, you, uh, you know, this trail is still closed and you're not supposed to be out here yet. How, how did you get out here? Like the road just opened today. (laughs) And it's like, well, so I came in from here's our draft on the other side and I was just an avalanche on Glen and they were, they were two park rangers who were going to come out and start assessing the trail situation that year. And they immediately freaked out. They're like, do you need help? Do you need us to help get you out of here? Like, and I was like, I mean, I think I'm okay. Like I'm bruised, but nothing's broken. I'm just going to sleep and, and hike out tomorrow. Like if that's all right. And they gave me wow. some bait on where some, some rivers were flooded and stuff further down. But wow. Yeah, that, that that's was the amazing. avalanche. That's amazing. Was that the end of your hiking then for, for that season? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> you went back for more. <laughs> It maybe should have been. So I I decided to skip skip Glen and I can't remember what the two passes are after that, but I decided to skip forward. I so I ended up getting out. I get down to Fresno. I I hitchhike to Fresno, which was a whole ordeal. My my mom comes and picks me up in Fresno. I go back to the little town in Northern California that I'm from and I lay on the couch healing for three or four days. I do an interview with the Associated Press about it, which was one of the wildest experiences of my life. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I can link it in your show notes if you want. Yeah, I would love to see that. Do share it. <laughs> yeah. And then my mom was like, well, I'm not driving you back down there. Basically, I think she was like, if my daughter wants to go die in the mountains, I'm not going to be a part of facilitating it. (laughs) Um, 
And one of my friends who was a, a game warden at the time, um, he was like, well, I'm driving down that way if you want to ride. And so he drops me off at Bishop Pass and I go back in over Bishop and keep going. And it was actually beautiful. I saw some, you know, at that point, a lot of the avalanches that were going to happen, it was kind of amazing what a difference that week made. Three weeks at that point, I had spent in the mountains in the snow before the avalanche. Everything was pre-avalanche conditions for the most part. And then going forward, that week, so many happened. And I'm so glad I wasn't out there that week. And so then I was just like traversing these like beautiful avalanche fields with these like trees that were like three feet in diameter that had just been snapped like toothpicks. And I was just happily skiing through on my little Nordic skis. And then I got through Evolution Valley. Um, I got up to the Mir Hut. I got to spend 36 hours in the Mir Hut while I waited out a storm. And I was the only person oh in the Mir Hut, which is oh, crazy. Like even in the middle of winter, there's always AT ski like guided tours that are going out there. And and you just, you never get that. And And so that was a really unreal experience. And I get down through Evolution Valley and it's just stunning. And I see the um, little log ranger's cabin there had been wiped out by an avalanche. <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, avalanches everywhere. And then I get to Evolution Creek. There are two crossings possible for Evolution Creek. One is the, the normal crossing. But if you screw up anything in that normal crossing, there's about 2000 feet of series of waterfalls immediately after it. And if the water's high at all, it's a pretty treacherous crossing. It, it would be up to your waist at least. And so I got there and I saw that and I said, nope. And so I backtracked about half a mile to where the high water crossing is. And I crossed successfully there, but I had to get in the water up to my chest in freezing cold, fresh oh. snow melt. Luckily it was, you know, it was kind of like wading across a swimming pool. Like there was no current at all but it was still a little daunting and it was extremely cold. It's one of the only times I'm, I'm personally kind of against um, making campfires in the backcountry. but that night I made a campfire. Yeah. It was <laughs> very cold. So that was the final straw for me. I, I got up to um, where you would turn off to go to Vermilion Valley Resort, which is a fairly common resupply. If you can't make it all the way to Torrens Meadows, you, you resupply in, um, in VVR and I got there and one of the last things you do is uh, cross Bear Creek and I got to a note on a tree that was dated from an AT ski group that was kind of I think anticipating PCT hikers saying that Bear Creek was impassable. They had gone eight miles up the creek and there was nowhere to cross and so they had backtracked all the way back and I, I had noticed I was following their their ski path and so I was right there at the I guess it's the turnoff for the Muir Trail Ranch and anyone who <laughs> listens who's really familiar with that neck of the woods will be like oh I know exactly where that is and uh, so I took that turn off and and ended up wandering down to my plan was to get to VVR and kind of reassess and see what they thought the situation was going forward and see if I could get to Yosemite somehow because I kind of figured once I got to Yosemite I would be more or less out of the woods so to speak yeah I got to the hot springs resort that is right below VVR and they go oh there's there's no one at VVR there's not going to be anyone at VVR for another month or so and they gave me a bunch of information and they fed me dinner and they let me sleep in one of their cabins for the night and then I ended up hiking out the road and a whole long story but essentially that was the end of my hike that year wow what an adventure (laughs) yeah so Obviously, 
you have the adventure and the outdoor experience. How did sailing come into the picture? Excellent question. So I grew up with my my mom's older brother, did the whole, <laughs> to some extent, you know, live fast, live hard, die fast lifestyle. And mm-hmm. he brokered airplanes for a part of his life. And he had a house on the beachfront in Long Beach and or San Clemente rather. And um, of course, one of the toys that you have to have when you're living that lifestyle is a sailboat. And so he and his girlfriend at the time took off to sail around the world and they made it as far as central Mexico from Long Beach. I think they took about eight years to get that far. But um, I went down several times in that period of time to, uh, to visit them on their sailboat. And I just thought it was the coolest lifestyle. And of course, the the version of sailing I experienced at that time was a Hunter 46, the owner's edition with the really nice aft cabin. And it has the kind of double V berths um, that's separated by a wall down the middle. It's just, it's a beautiful boat. Staying in these nice, you know, luxury tourist marinas in Mexico, surrounded by fishing boats worth more than I can even think about. Um, I looked at that lifestyle and I went, wow, this is really cool. And there is no way, no matter what I do in my life, that I will ever be able to afford this. I'll enjoy it now while I'm eight years old and, you know, maybe someday. And then, and then kind of that maybe someday happened. I was 18 years old and I was on this vacation with my high school girlfriend and her family. And um, we are paddling around Puget Sound in a canoe and there was this sailboat out on a mooring with a for sale sign and a number and so I called it. I was like I, I want this sailboat and it was too much money and in too far disrepair. I even not knowing anything about boats at the time I looked at and I went, well this is too much money for what <laughs> for what I'm seeing in front of my eyes. And uh-huh. and that kind of led to the saga of like Okay, every every few years, Michaela goes and looks at a sailboat, assesses, maybe this is the right boat for her. And what I wanted, because it was what I had experienced seeing my uncle in Mexico, was I wanted a floating apartment that sat at a dock and never went anywhere. Because I didn't know that there was this whole other sailing lifestyle where it's not just your toy that you go visit on the weekends, but it's your home. And it can be such an incredible adventure vehicle. Through rock climbing and mountaineering, of course, I was exposed to the whole van life culture and the whole dirt bagging culture. My dad was a huge fan of Fred Becky, who I think coined the term dirt bagging, um, which is this idea of just like, you don't work, you do nothing but climb, you live out of your car, it's just whatever you have to do to make ends meet so that you're climbing as much as possible. That kind of appealed to me. That was kind of the lifestyle I was living, except I still had this day job that was like just enough to like make it so that I could spend every weekend climbing. And then every once in a while I'd look at this boat because like how cool would it be to also have a boat? And then I discovered there's a whole group of people called liveaboards who live on their boats and it's so much cheaper. And so I went, okay, living on a boat cheaper, I can climb more. And that was kind of how I started looking at a couple more boats and they just, for whatever reason, didn't, didn't quite meet this vision of what I had because I didn't know hardly anything about sailing. I didn't know what I was actually looking for in a capable sailing vessel I knew what I was looking for in like a boat that I wanted to live on at a dock. Mm -hmm. 
In 2019, my partner who I started transitioning with and I very amicably split up. She's still one of my best friends. I stopped living with her, obviously, because (laughs) it didn't make sense for us to live together anymore. And I moved in with some friends and that was going great for about two months. And then there was a leak in the roof that was supposed to take a week to repair. And then it was going to be months to repair. And then they were going to sell the house. And it just kind of led to this like, oh, I don't have anywhere to live. I couch surfed for about four months. Kind of had this like intentional period of homelessness in my life. I, I never had to, I slept in my car once. But I didn't even really have to. But I just, you know, I would show up at my friend's house, not unannounced, but show up, you know, with them knowing I was coming with a six pack of beer and, hey, I'll, you know, let's hang out and be friends and I'll sleep on your couch tonight and take a shower in the morning and then I'll be on my way to, you know, the next person's <laughs> house. And, and I didn't know what I was looking for. I knew that I didn't want to just go sign a year lease. There was something about that that kind of felt like death to me. Uh Um, it just didn't fit into this lifestyle that I knew is what I wanted to be living and I just couldn't find the right you know it was like okay well like who has a basement unit that I can rent super cheap and on a month-to-month basis or one of the things I was looking for was like how can I find the right van cheap enough that I can build out and and start doing this kind of dirtbag life and where this was in the Pacific this was in the Pacific Northwest yeah, this was in Seattle. In Seattle. And then unfortunately, that kind of coincided with a shoulder injury. And so I went, okay, well, I'm now also going to be out of climbing for a bit. Started physical therapy. And one of my friends, who I knew from the climbing gym, but hadn't been in a while since I'd been out for the shoulder injury, but I, I was working at an outdoor retail shop in Seattle. He came in and he goes, hey, are you still homeless? And I was like, Shh, yes, what? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm moving on to a different boat. Do you want to live on my boat down at down at the port and uh, down at Shilshul Harbor in Seattle? And oh, I know Shilshul like, well. I worked at the West Marine there for a whole summer. Wonderful, yeah. That West <laughs> Marine is now in downtown Ballard. It's no longer out at Shilshul, but okay. I know exactly where it was when they closed. I did some very good dumpster dive. I bet as they were dismantling the building. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so down at Shulshul, he goes, yeah, you want to live on my boat? And I go, well, so the short answer is yes, but the longer answer is I know that you are about to sell your boat, and I also know that you only have three months left on your, you know, he, he bought the boat from someone about nine months before he was offering it to me, and you can only live on a boat under a liveaboard agreement with Shulshul for a year after you buy a boat before you then have to essentially get back on the wait list to have a slip there. And so I was like, I don't want somewhere to live for three months and then be screwed again. And he said, okay, how about this? You start paying my mortgage right now, which was a little before I was gonna actually move on to the boat. And then you just pay it going forward and I'll sign the title over to you. He said, basically, he said what the boat is worth I'm going to lose in three months of moorage. The boat's 30 feet long, 31 feet overall with the outboard mount. And he was in a 45 foot slip and he had to pay for the whole slip. So he was hemorrhaging money on this boat. And Um, then, and then you could get it the slip for a year. No, I still, I still would have to find somewhere to move the boat in three months, but I figured if I owned the boat, I could find somewhere to move it. Um, Which is exactly what happened. 
I pretty quickly, when you're paying $700 a month for moorage, you're real motivated to find somewhere else to put the boat. But I went down one night after dark without hauling the boat out and looked at the boat and said, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> and <laughs> in a lot of aspects, I got really lucky. Um, and this, this I, is the boat you're on now, Swirl? This is the boat I'm on now, Swirl. This is, this is how she and I met up. Um, and you mentioned that you were, were, you're sitting on her right now and, and, and yeah. she has a rebuilt interior. Yeah, she does. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that for sure because that's, that's part of the story of Swirl for sure. So I'd done quite a bit of research on San Juan 30s before I went out to look at this boat and I, I kind of had, well, okay, it's really hard to do research on San Juan 30s. They only made 310 of them, but they made about 3,000 San Juan 28s and they're essentially the same boat. So I, I did a lot of research on San Juan 28s and I figured out what I should kind of be looking for when I came out to look at this boat and what some of the problem areas are and everything looked really good. And so I said, you know, I'll take it. And then one of the other huge advantages in my mind, and I still hold to the point that this was a big advantage on buying an older, not super well-maintained sailboat. She didn't have a head. She didn't have a black water tank. She didn't have a freshwater tank, which means I didn't have to pull any of those out. <laughs> Starting with that blank slate was great. <laughs> that was exactly what I needed. And so I, I moved aboard immediately and tried to you know, I'd been downsizing my life for, for many years at that point. Um, I had, like I said, I had, I had hiked the PCT in 2015. I moved to Guatemala in 2016, lived there for almost a year. I hiked the PCT again in 2017. Um, and so now we're, you know, 2018, I lived with my partner in a more or less normal house in Seattle, but I still was downsizing quite a bit and really focusing on climbing. So every penny I had was going into climbing gear which luckily doesn't take up tons of space per dollar spent. Um, <laughs> the only good part about what climbing gear costs, some, I guess. Some of the climbing gear, I would imagine, overlaps a bit with sailing gear. A little bit. Um, one thing I have learned is you cannot use even static climbing line that doesn't stretch. You cannot use it on a sailboat because it shrinks in the UV. And I knew that it shrunk in the UV, uh. but I didn't know how much it shrunk. And sailing lines don't, not the, not to the same extent, at least. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I do. What I do still have, and the skill set that I absolutely love, and I, I do make a little bit of money on the side doing it for other people, is all of my um, rope ascension gear. So I can go up a mast without having to be winched up. I can do it. I was um, just going to say, you must be a pro at going up and down masts. Yeah, I just installed a cutter stay on Swirl and I spent total seven hours aloft working on this cutter <laughs> stay. And, and one of them was one four hour stretch that I didn't come down for four hours. And I was so proud of myself for remembering everything I needed. <laughs> I didn't, didn't have to come down for something I forgot even. Yeah, I get this boat, uh, I, I move aboard, try and cram my life into it. Pretty immediately, I do know that one of the things I need to do is is haul the boat out and look at what the bottom looks like. And, and when I bought the boat, it had, it had 2013 tabs on it. So I was like, okay, maybe, maybe someone took it out in 2013. Now 2019. So it's been saying for at least six years. But really my guess was, having learned some history of the boat, it probably hadn't left the slip since 2007. Mm -hmm. um, that was the last time it raced. 
the so one guy owned it from from 1977 when it was built he bought it um some really cool stories and paperwork that came with that i got super lucky that the guy who shared the horseshoe the slip with me in shell shoal knew the original owner of this boat they had been they'd been slip neighbors for like 30 years he told me quite a bit, a bit of history about the boat. This boat has actually sailed down the west coast of the U.S. through the Panama Canal up the east coast of the U.S. I then have a receipt from Maine uh, where it was hauled out and I assume trailered and shipped back across the states because oh. I don't have any of the paperwork kind of showing a, a track back. But I have a lot of the actual paperwork showing that track getting to Maine this is fascinating trying to like piece together the life. Yeah. I remember buying a, a boat from the 60s and, and going through every single locker and uncovering old letters and things and just trying to piece together this boat's life. Yeah, no, it was really cool. I really enjoyed that part of, of first getting to know Swirl. Get her hauled out and, and she looks incredible. There's no blistering, which the, the 70s models of Clark Company built San Juans because a few different yards have built San Juans. Um, we're actually really known for really solid fiberglass and really well done fiberglass work. Um, kind of seems like they were one of the first yards on the West Coast, especially the Northern West Coast that like really figured out how to do layups and get them smooth without pockets and not have blister problems. So I got super lucky on that one. The other things I got really lucky on was it's pretty clear that someone took this boat all the way down to barrier coat, probably two or three coats of bottom paint ago. So it's, oh. it doesn't have big chunks of bottom paint flaking off. Like the bottom looks incredible. That saves you <laughs> a lot of work. I was just in the yard next to somebody who was taking it down all the way. And oh, yeah. I could not envy that. Yeah, <laughs> so... But yeah, so I got lucky in a lot of different aspects. And, um, and the more I learned about this boat and about living on and working on boats, the more I realized like, oh, I really got lucky. Now the one place I didn't get lucky, which I, I did in some aspects. I, I, overall, I got lucky, but it was an amusing, quick little anecdotal story. Um, I'm in the yard, first haul out. One of the first things I know I need to do is replace these like really scary original through hauls. And so uh, I get these through hauls and I'm getting the old ones out and I take the backing nut off this through haul and it just falls out of the bottom of the boat. And oh my the guy gosh. Who works at the yard walks by and he goes, Did you hit it with a hammer? And I was like, No, I just took the backing nut off. And he goes, Oh, well, you're lucky your boat didn't sink. Yeah. <laughs> Oh and God. now knowing what I do about boats, I'm like, holy crap, I'm so lucky I didn't, my boat didn't sink. Well, good for you replacing all of those. I just did that on my boat. And it certainly yeah. leads to peace of more peace of mind. It really, yeah, really, really does. And glassing over any through hole that you're not using, that I just, yeah, can't. Yeah. I mean, they're what sink boats. They're literal holes in the bottom of your boat. Get right, you want to take care can. of where there are holes in your boat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I guess I'll flash forward a little bit to then kind of how I got into it. So, so now a lot of this story has been about how I wanted a floating apartment. Right, right. Um, Talk about the sailing aspect. When did you get into that? Yeah. So, so, then, so then I owned a sailboat. This adventurous girl who loves, loves rigging and ropes. I've studied physics for a while. Uh, and so I kind of had this like idea of how a boat should sail. 
Now, the smart thing would have been probably to take out someone who knew how to sail and, and learn how to sail. But no, I grabbed one of my other friends who had no idea how to sail, who had never been on a sailboat before. I said, hey, do you want to sail from Seattle to Kingston and back in a day? And how I far no is that? Long... Well, it's about, about five hours one way. Okay. <laughs> and it's longer a, when you get there a... and tie up and have lunch and then come back, so... Yeah, for a first jaunt, that's uh, quite a ways. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I, le- I learned a lot from that, that day out, but um, but it went really well, and, and we put some sails up, and we just kind of saw what it felt like, and, and we leaned the boat over pretty far, and oh, that was fun, and oh, it stands back up, thank goodness, right? And um, <laughs> I will say, my advice to other people is start with a smaller boat. <laughs> going yeah. out for your first time on a 30-foot boat if you're determined to learn yourself it's a little scary <laughs> here and there that was how it went I just started learning to sail and I and I went out on days when it was blowing seven knots and I started learning how to you know really light air sail where there's very low consequences if something goes wrong yeah and then I started going out and and at first always with someone else and and start going on overnight and then people have to get back for work. And so no matter what the weather does, you have to come back. <laughs> Again, summer in the Pacific Northwest, it's a pretty safe gamble. But um, I started learning how to go out and come back. And I, and I bought a decent anchor so that I could go out and not have to stay at a marina. Were you reading or using other resources to teach yourself? Or was it all trial and error? I was reading Cruiser's Forum about just kind of like the physics of sailing race boats and i was i was watching youtube as a lot of people do mm-hmm. and to learn about sail trim and angles i was playing a game on my phone <laughs> which was helpful to learn about like okay so the wind is coming from this direction and this is more or less what your sails should look like but there are um, so many systems on a cruising boat. It's it's definitely you need to know how to sail. But as you just mentioned, you also need to know how to anchor. You need to know how to get the outboard to work, how to do the electrical when that fails. How about all those things? Was it just learning as you went? It was learning as I went and, and a decent amount of luck. I got lucky that I didn't have a major electrical failure failure until I was about three or four months into it and I was at the dock when it happened but it was just kind of like all systems went down and I started trying to figure out why and it was because the boat had all original wire and so then as I could afford to buy 10 14 and 12 gauge wire depending on how far the runs were I just started replacing electrical wire and you do you know when you're when you're living aboard your boat you do the the lights first and the autopilot last. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, anchoring, I got lucky uh, having a really awesome neighbor at the marina that I moved to after Shilshul. I moved to McInnes Marina, which is this little single dock marina just inside the locks in Lake Washington. So that was another thing I had to learn how to do was go through the locks and have enough control over my boat not to hit the mega yachts that I was in the locks with. (laughs) Um, I still have a scar on the bow pulpit of Swirl where we hit the concrete side of the locks leaving one time. There are a lot of obstacles Um, there. I remember 
teaching sailing on Lake Washington yeah. and, 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 and the uh, float planes coming down and buzzing over the top of us. Yeah, so I never sailed in the lake. We, we never went into the lake because we didn't want to deal with the bridges. We, I just, I just went out in the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at least I didn't have to deal with float planes until I was up in the San Juans. But you know, one thing too, I was going to say on the learning to sail, there was no running rigging on the boat when I, when I bought it, it was all down. There were rat lines run for the, um, halyards, but other than that, there were no sheets. There was no boom bang, anything. It really had been an apartment tied to the dock. Oh, for years, years and years. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, all the sails weren't even on the boat. They were in someone's storage unit. It's like I had to go one day and like pick up. He goes, yeah, there are kind of a lot of sails. And I was like, okay. And I go, and there are 14 sails for the boat. And I was like, what? Well, I know this is about 12 more than I was expecting. So I have to figure out what the hell these all are. And so, and, and so I went to a sail loft. I went to a sail loft in... Um, Oh, I wish I could remember which loft. It's the loft that's above where the old West Marine was in, in Ballard there, uh, right by Shoal Shoal. And I, they deserve the biggest shout out and I cannot remember what the name of that loft is. But he sat there with me for three hours, free of charge, and went over every single sail that the boat came with and told me not only what condition it was in, if I should bother keeping it, if it needed repairs, whatever, but also what conditions to use it in, how to use it with my boat to his best guess. Wow. And then the wildest thing that happened is we're, we're going through these sails and he just kind of starts cackling. And I have this old spinnaker from Neft Sails, which used to be in Issaquah, Washington, N-E-F-T. And he just kind of starts cackling and go, what? And he goes, I made the sale 30 oh years God. ago as an intern, as an apprentice for the guy who owned the sail loft. I made this spinnaker. <laughs> How great is that? It was so crazy. And it was just like, I think that was one of the first times that hit me too, where I was like, whoa, sailing is a small world. And I've, I've learned that a few times over. Similarly, how climbing is a small world. Um, but yeah, that was that was. You'll wild. find that too as you're doing a, your circumnavigation. You'll start running into yeah. people who know people. You, you know, the degrees of separation will be small. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and so that was how I learned about sales for the boat. And thank God he gave me really good advice too on on what was worth keeping and what wasn't. And you know, he, he basically said, well, my best guess is it was the largest sail allowed in the class back in the day. The boat came with 450% foresails, which is just wild. And there was, there was a Dacron one, there was a hundred percent Mylar one. And he was like, get rid of it. Just throw it in the trash. Mm. <laughs> um, so, and now 150% on this boat feels ridiculous. Granted, I don't race it, but most of the day, most of the time I, I cruise around with a 97%. But it was all thanks to this guy who just, who spent three hours of his day at work going through all my sails with me. That is wonderful. The sailing community does shine that way. People yeah. come out of the woodwork. And when did you reach the point where you said to yourself, a, I want to do a circumnavigation, and B, that you think, I think I feel ready to do a circumnavigation. 
COVID happened and I suddenly found myself for load and with a lot of time to sail. And so I just started sailing and I took someone with me and we, we left Seattle and we poked around the Whidbey and Camano Islands for a while, eventually made our way up to the San Juans. But in that first year, I put a thousand miles into the keel, then gutted the entire interior of the boat and rebuilt it. And I'd spent a year dreaming about what I wanted the interior of this boat to look like. And also I'd spent a year chasing mold and mildew. And I decided that all the wood needed to go. And so I gutted the entire boat and I rebuilt it. And that was the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. Well, coming out still might've been more terrifying. So maybe the second most terrifying thing I've done in my life where I finally (laughs) had a home after having been, you know, more or less homeless there for a little while, I then had a home again and I tore it apart (laughs) Um, to the point that I did come to the boatyard one day and I looked at it and I went, crap <laughs> i don't know if i can put this back together and i went back did you the, were you living on the boat when you did that no we rented a cabin in in okay. point roberts which was a trip i lived in point roberts while it was cut off from the rest of the world because of covid and there were 300 people living there so i rebuilt the interior and and then my the person who was cruising around with me moved off the boat and I was alone on the boat and I was working, I ended up having to take a job here in Friday Harbor as the pandemic calmed down a little bit. And um, at least fiscally, we all went back to more or less normality. I started going, I really miss the mountains. Like I really miss the mountains. Maybe it's time to sell the sailboat and move to the mountains. And I almost bought property in Nevada and was gonna build a little log cabin there. And I, and I that, this was when it started. This was last July. I sat down and I went, okay, if I'm going to sell the boat and move to the mountains, am I in five years, 10 years, 20 years, going to look back on this and go, crap. Like, yeah, I had a really fun time cruising around with Swirl, but I didn't do anything. Like, I, I just cruised around the Puget Sound. And, and for a lot of people, that would be enough. That would be incredible. But that's not the background that I come from. I come from this background of like, needing to set first ascents or needing to ski the high Sierras or, you know, whatever it was. And so I was like, am I going to look back and go, wow, I kind of just wasted three years of my life learning how to sail. And then I never did anything with it. Of course, I would have had good memories from it, but I, but I, after a month or so of sitting with that concept, I went, yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm really going to sit around and go, I learned how to sail really well. I'm no expert sailor, but I'm a pretty, pretty darn good sailor. And I haven't done any single thing of note with it. And so I started looking at things. I was like, okay, I could go around Vancouver Island. A lot of people around here do that. And that's one of the things that like, it's kind of like a test piece. People go out and circumnavigate Vancouver Island to see if they can. And I went, hmm, I wonder if I could do it engineless. That would be kind of cool. Swirl doesn't have an inboard right now. So it'd be easy, just ditch the outboard, put a couple of oars on. We have some manual power, go around Vancouver Vancouver Island engineless. Well, I don't know. Other people have done it. (laughs) Apparently I have a problem with doing things other people have done. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so I started looking at some other ones and I was like, oh man, high latitude sailing. How cool would it be to go up and like do the inside passage and swirl? And she's just not the right boat for it because the reality is you end up motoring 
huge stretches of it. And also you need a boat that's at least somewhat insulated. Um, I do live on this boat year round through the winter and I have a good wood, wood burning stove and she has more insulation than she came with, but she's still cold in the winter. I decided that wouldn't be the best idea. And so then I started looking at like, okay, well, I could go the other way. I could go south. I could do, you know, there are all these different things. Looked at the Pacific Loop again, having to deal with high latitude. She's just not the right boat for it. And I said, well, there's, there's kind of one. Like there's kind of like this one big thing you can do in sailing go around the whole world. <laughs> like, hmm. yeah. I wonder, I wonder how many trans people have gone around the world. I wonder how many openly trans people have gone around the world. And I was thinking someone's done it, right? Someone's done it as a crew member on a cruise ship. Someone's done it as a crew member on a big sailing boat. Someone's, someone has done it as a crew member of a boat. I, my guess was no one had done it solo because like 400 people have gone around the world solo on a sail. I think it's less than that. I think it's 300 people have gone around the world solo on a sailboat, whether that's stop or non-stop. And, yeah. And so I figured that no one trans had done it. And I was like, well, you know, that's kind of, but like someone's gone around. No, no one has. No. Okay. And then I started looking more broadly than that. And I was like, okay, well, how many gay people have gone around the world on a sailboat? Like, right? Like, I know some gregarious gay sailing men who are adventurous and, and out there and proud and they have, they've done it, right? And, and yes, they have. Um, there, there was a, a gay couple, two husbands who went around the world a few years ago together on their boat. It's great. They now run, <laughs> now run a charter boat system down in, uh, down in the Bahamas. And it just looks like a grand time catering to other gay men. <laughs> very looks cool. like last um it's super cool and I'm, I'm glad to to have those people in the community but but no one's done it solo it's like really like, like no one has done like the Vendee globe or something is also openly queer like we have more and more queer athletes every day and it's and it's awesome but like none of them have okay well and then i started thinking about the political situation in the world and how trans people in particular are just under this constant attack and it just so happened the serendipity of it, I read a report that day about how a trans girl in Illinois was being kicked off her high school soccer team because she wasn't a girl. And I said, this is bullshit. And it happens every day. And I watch it happen every day. And I, aside from just existing, and I write articles, and I do this like small part, and I, I like to think I play a little bit bigger part in my direct community but like I have this skill set that I have been cultivating my entire life I have this, this really awesome knack for risk management I, I stay really calm under pressure I've ended up in the ER for having messed myself up uh, three times in my life. And every time the attending ER physician didn't believe that what I told them had happened had happened because they said, well, you're just so calm. But it's also, it's really kind of a superpower because they keep a really cool head under pressure and it makes me really good at, at risk management, at emergency, dealing with emergencies. And so that's gotta be a great skill set for going around the world. And I'm really good with, with ropes or, on a sailboat lines and and I understand physics and I understand pulley systems and 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 how this all works like that is the part of sailing that I really get and I understand how the boat sails and how it's going to handle offshore 
when I'm not having to deal with the crazy currents that happen in the San Juans and I've spent <laughs> time, I, I haven't spent time offshore in Swirl, but I have spent time in the Strait of Juan de Fuca on some particularly nasty days with the Pacific swell rolling in at full tilt. And that feels like a pretty good step towards spending that time offshore. So tell, um, us, tell us what the, the plan is. Do you have a departure time in mind, departure date, roughly? I, I do. I'm going to depart uh, late July or early August of next year. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave from here and sail south. <laughs> um, towards Panama. Uh, and I'm probably, I mean, I can almost guarantee I'm not going to go straight from here to Panama in one stretch. Um, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to stop along the line away. I actually like the idea a lot of stopping in San Francisco. My well, please do so that we can catch up. In person. I was going to say you have to, stop I mean, that here. would be great. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I will definitely seriously consider it that that's one of the places that makes a lot of sense to me to stop on the way South is, is San Francisco. Um, and then maybe Mexico. And then, you know, the idea is then get down to Panama and you want to leave Panama in early November to head West, you know, from there, it's just kind of, it's French Polynesia. And then you got to get out of the way of the storm systems happening South of the equator. So you head up to Thailand and you have to get away from monsoon season. So you head back South towards South Africa again around Christmas of then 2024, leave South Africa, head towards Brazil. Pretty nice time to cross the South Atlantic from what I hear. Get up to Brazil and, and then Panama's right there and you've gone around the world. Don't I make it sound easy? <laughs> Simple as that. Simple as that. Simple as that. That's the logistical plan yeah. um, as far as the route I'm going to take more or less and and it's going to happen, I think, in that few countries. The goal is to do about 15 months from Panama to Panama. That's awesome. Well, I have so many more questions for you, particularly about the circumnavigation. But I think we're going to have to do that in another interview as you get closer. I want to hear about everything that you have, what you want to do to the boat your preparation for the circumnavigation. You mentioned you haven't sailed offshore yet, if you're going to be doing any offshore sailing before then, but I've already kept you for an hour. So we will chat again, I'm sure, maybe here in San Francisco, maybe before you depart. But is there anything else that you wanted to, to say or talk about before we wrap this up? The one last point, I feel like every year that I come out and especially around, you know, the early part of the year, it's trans day visibility. And then you have pride month. I, I kind of end up coming up with this theme kind of unintentionally for the year. And last year's theme was just get in the way. And it was kind of this message to, to cis people of like, what can you do to help the trans community is, uh -huh. is you can get in the way between the people who, who want to do us harm and us. And that can be very literally physically, or it can be online or whatever. This year's message has really turned into the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. And we talked about some scary things that happened to me in my interview here today. The scariest thing I've ever done in my life is come out as trans. And people, it, it's other people in the world who make that such a scary thing for us to do. And that's the point of this trip. That's the point of what I'm spending the next few years of my life doing is spreading this visibility of us being 
I, I say us meaning the trans community, but me specifically being really vulnerable and open about who I am to show that we are here and we exist and we're comfortable with who we are and it's other people who are making it not a safe space for us it's not it's it's not us <laughs> um and so that's kind of the theme for this year and 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 going forward that's kind of led to this project is the scariest thing you do in your life shouldn't be coming out you know who knows maybe the sail around the world will be scarier than coming out but i have a hard time for seeing that with everything else i've done that's that's kind of the last last thing I wanted to say is just that's the that's the message behind this trip is that we need to find ways to to make the world safer and more open and more accepting of I will say trans people as an umbrella but especially trans kids like there's a reason I didn't come out in elementary school and high school regardless of the fact of knowing very young I, I have endless ideas for people and you can find a lot of them on my website in what past releases that I've, yeah. I will, my website. I will link to it, but please, but please mention it. Well, uh, you know, as you've listened to this whole interview and you've gone, Hey, but who is this Michaela Bauer person? Well, you can find out all that information at who is Michaela Bauer.com. Michaela M-C-K-A-Y-L-A Bauer B-O-W-E-R. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. All right. Who's Michaela Bauer? Hey, Michaela, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really honored to help you spread this message and reach more people. Thank you so much, Ben. It was really a delight talking with you as well. And I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate the number of people who have been interested in picking up this story in some way or another. And and when you reached out, that was really, really special. As Michaela mentioned, you can read more about her story and her boat at whoismichaelabauer.com. As always, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts, and if you want to get in touch, you can always drop me a line at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. Until next time, smooth sailing.